0: Welcome to That Medic Podcast, your bi-weekly dose of all things digital health, global health,
1: and leadership. My name is Success, a student at Cambridge University.
0: And I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University.
1: Join us as we chat with some top professionals in healthcare. Enjoy.
0: In this podcast, we spoke to Joel Burvell, a medical student who creates short form videos about healthcare disparities for an audience of over 600,000 people. We discussed his work fighting for health equity through TikTok, as well as his advocacy with the White House, American Medical Association, and World Health Organization. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited about leveraging social media for health literacy or just intrigued about medical education generally. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Hi Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. So we normally start the podcast by asking the question, why
1: did you decide to pursue medicine? So I always make the joke that my parents, both my parents both from Ghana, West Africa, and they essentially said I could be one of three things, either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. <laughs> uh, for a long time, I actually did want to be a lawyer. And then over time, I was like, you know, I don't really want to do that anymore. But that's an engineer. And so I didn't want to kind of follow in his footsteps. And so medicine was always in the realm of what I wanted to do. But it really took, I think, two experiences in my life, specifically with strong black women from my family, that made me um, decide on medicine for sure. The first person was my grandma. Growing up, she was the person who took care of my siblings and I for a long time, and especially because my parents were always at work, trying to make sure that my siblings and I had a better life. She ended up going back to Ghana when my siblings and I were in kind of our middle school years and able to take care of ourselves. And within a year of her going back, she passed away from malaria. I just remember hearing from my mom that part of the reason why she passed away is because the hospital had expected her to bring her own tubing, her own materials that she didn't have. So she had delays in care from what she needed. It was my first experience kind of thinking about kind of medicine and the inequalities in medicine, albeit at that time it was on a global perspective, but it really made me curious about the medical field and how things like that happen. The second experience was kind of fast forwarding into my high school years. Uh, My sister was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. At the same time, I was working at Seattle Children's Hospital. It was my first ever internship. And I was having the opportunity to kind of shadow doctors, see how they interact, and started to realize that medicine is so much more than kind of what Gray's Anatomy and all these other shows make it out to be, that it's really about forming relationships. It's about helping people through their toughest times. And for me, there was something moving about that, about being able to see that you could help someone when they don't understand what's happening in their own life, be able to translate that language of medicine, which can be so complicated, into something that they can understand and then run with it and help them down the line to actually get better. So I think from there, I kind of jumped into saying, hey, this is exactly what I want to do. Went to Yale for undergrad, majored in molecular biology, um, and then applied to medical school afterwards.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now it's interesting to just hear, like there's always, uh, for many people that I've spoken to, that there's always some family background or family connection. And I think it mm-hmm. also is just, I um, mean, to just share a story from my my own life, um, I remember I was talking to this one surgeon and he asked me why I was interested in medicine. I was like, oh, I want to save lives. Give him this sort of standard boilerplate answer. And he said, if you want to save lives, go be a pilot. <laughs> you save 300 lives every time you fly. So just sort of having, <laughs> it needs to be sort of why you want to do it through medicine. I think that's a really wonderful way to put it. Yeah. So, you know, I want to ask a little bit about, I mean, online, you're popularly known as the medical myth Um, and you have. <laughs> 110 million views on TikTok and Instagram, um, over 600,000 followers across all social media platforms. So for our listeners who may not have seen your videos, the very few who haven't, um, what does your content look like and what kind of topics do you cover?
1: So I create content about healthcare disparities and conversations that we actually don't have in medical school, specifically about communities of color and often how they're left out of the narrative of medicine. So as an example, I talk about things like pulse oximeters which are devices like on your um, finger and measure your blood oxygen saturation level. I talk about how those don't work as equally in darker skin tones, which is something I actually never learned in my medical school. I saw an article about, or I talk about how equations like the GFR equation, which stands for glomerular filtration rate, which measures how well your kidneys work, have race-based equations in them. Meaning that if you're black, they give you a different number than if you're any other race. Same thing happens with um, urology equations and also with congestive heart failure equations, and also even with spirometry, which measures lung functioning. And so I talk a lot about how in medicine, there's all these things that exist that are built off of this history of, for like, I mean, to put it bluntly, racism, built off of history of racism that still exists in the medical system. And talk about how do we de- decolonize that. How do we make sure that images in our dermatology classes actually show us what conditions look like on darker skin versus lighter skin? How do we make sure that we're having these conversations in an equitable way so that the future doctors know these problems exist and don't think it's because of biology, but recognize that's because of social factors that have been built on legacies of history that have gotten us here. And I think using TikTok is a very unique way to do that, but I started during the pandemic. Um, and I honestly don't think if it it hadn't been for the pandemic, I wouldn't have ever made these videos, but I'm so happy I did because I really think I'm filling a gap that doesn't exist right now, even to this day in medicine. And I would venture to say I'm probably the only account on TikTok that still does this. Like primarily, I think other people will like dabble in talking about health equity, but I'm definitely one of the only ones that consistently I'm talking about and breaking down the research for general audiences. Right.
0: No, I think that's a really good point because I mean, there's this notion that's, I mean, and frustratingly popular that, oh, we've emerged in this post-racial society, right? I think it emerged after President Obama was elected, right? And just this false notion, right? It, it couldn't be further from the truth. And I think yeah. it's really interesting to hear that from, I mean, your perspective, being in medical school, right? you're not learning these things. There's this there's abs- big absence, right? And mm-hmm. then trying to fill
1: that on your own, <laughs> really. Um, exactly. I think the nice thing now is that there's a lot of research being done, but this research is happening only in the past five to 10 years. There's been, I think, research done before that, but it's just exploded in quite literally the past two years. And once again, I think COVID 2020 was this hinge point for it where a lot of new conversations were had because you kept hearing in the media how black communities were being devastated by COVID. And many researchers were saying, why is that? What is it about black communities that's making it like this? And so then you start looking into all the historical context of black individuals being more likely to be first-line workers. Or black individuals living in food deserts, or not having as equal access to um, health services to be able to get to the hospital, or not having as much as equal access to uh, services like Medicaid, right? And so all these things kind of aggregate and cause these disparities. I think, as researchers started approaching it from that perspective, it really changed the conversation and had more people getting interested in these systems level problems that exist in healthcare.
0: Yeah, no, that was really a really great point. You know, I want to go back to something you mentioned, sort of that. Uh, one of your f- first racial bias series, TikTok videos on Paul accidenters yeah. I was wondering if you could tell me the story about that. Uh, how did you get the idea to create that video on TikTok, no less?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was December 2020. I'd already been using TikTok for about a year, but I was talking about a lot of different things. I didn't really know my niche yet. And I was just like having fun making videos that were educational. I knew I didn't want to like I I don't want, like, I like dancing, but I didn't want to dance on TikTok, you know? Um, And so before that, I'd been making videos about actually what it was like to get into Yale as an undergrad and talking about, I mean, controversial things like affirmative action um, and talking about scholarships. Because actually, I got, I won over $200,000 in scholarships when I was in high school and ended up paying my way through college um, for free. And so all these types of things were things I was talking about before. But I was sitting at home, I was at home for winter break. So actually around like this time. And I remember I was scrolling through Instagram, looking through stories, and one of the stories I came across was this New England Journal of Medicine article that was about pulse oximeters. It was explaining how pulse oximeters um, essentially have a three times likelihood of reading inaccurately on darker skin, two times higher um, likelihood of reading inaccurately on darker skin. I would recently finished my pulmonology unit. I was wondering, I don't remember reading about this. This Is this true? Like it's published, so it must be true. But why would we not have this in our class? Because literary pulse stop are used by every single institution. And every person, no matter what you have, gets one. Like, why would we not learn that? I started doing a deeper dive, reading the literature, looking into it. And it turns out that for decades, this research had been been out there. I think at the time, I probably had, yeah, I definitely, I had about like 15,000 or 20,000 followers on TikTok at the time. Um, and I was just like, you know, let me make a video about this. Let me just talk about pulse oximeters. And like, I don't know if it's going to do well, but like, this is just shocking to me. And I was trying to think like how to get it really short at the time. TikTok only had 30 second videos. And so I was like, okay, I have to make 30 seconds. I have to explain this whole idea of like what a pulse oximeter is, how it works, that it has this bias. And then it has, that has impact for COVID, which we're like all talking about right now. Posted the video. And I think within like 24 to 48 hours, it had like 400,000 views. And I was like, what in the world? And started so going through the comments and it was doctors and nurses and PAs saying, I've used pulse oximeters my whole entire career. I never knew this. Or patients saying, you know, I've always felt like it didn't read, like it didn't work well on me. I'd be short of breath, yet they would read normally. And for me, that was like so shocking to see all these stories, both from practitioners saying, I didn't know about this patients saying, I didn't know about this. Maybe it's been affecting me. And it made me wonder where else does this exists, And that's really what started my, my racial bias in medicine series. I'm now probably 20, 25 episodes deep of that, where I dive into issues like that that we don't talk about in medicine, but impact patients every single day. Yeah.
0: You know, I'm, I'm curious, like when you posted that first, uh, that video on pulse um, did you ever think you were going to blow up the way you did? <laughs> Not at all.
1: <laughs> you know, like, I will say, like, I'd always wanted to get into YouTube and things like that for education. I remember I I tried YouTube for a hot summer and, like, <laughs> didn't do well. You know, I was just like, I don't like this. And I was just, like, playing around with TikTok. I was just having fun with it. But I could never imagine it blowing up like this or having a space to speak about ad- activism. Right, right.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point because, I mean, it, it just speaks to a larger thing that can't necessarily force right? Success or uh, yeah. popularity, right? But if you're sincere, tenacious, you're putting your heart in everything you do, right? These things can come on their own. No, so so th- thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I want to ask you about another thing. There's a quote that I personally really like. It goes something like, science without policy is a few publications and nothing more. Mm. Um, policy without science is frankly dangerous. Mm. Um, and I mean, essentially, it's the idea that policy should always go hand in hand with scholarship, yeah. whether that is um, research publications, whether that is sort of medical education you're doing or so on and so forth. So I wanted to ask you about that. How do you conceptualize sort of this social media advocacy, the social media education um, going hand in hand with policy changes as well?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I do a lot of policy and I see social media as a driver to educate people about that policy. Um, some of the things I'm involved in right now, I sit on a White House round table. It's for healthcare leaders in social media. And so it's actually the Biden and Harris administration will meet about like once a month, if not a little bit more frequently, and they sh- <clears throat> share tips um, about things that they're doing that's related to healthcare. And so, for example, when there was the baby formula shortage, that's the thing that they were t- at- talking to us about, telling us like, here's how we're solving it. Here are the things that we're doing. Or when it came to Roe versus Wade, of course, that was a huge conversation about what was the Biden administration doing in order to make sure that we retained the rights of reproductive justice for women in different areas. Um, So I think that's been really interesting is using social media as a vehicle to talk about these issues while also serving in these councils. Another one I'm on is called the Council for Responsible Social Media. That one's a little bit more broad. It's a bipartisan group of senators, congressmen, um, and just different activists and leaders in different spaces talking about how do we make sure that social media um, is a place that's safe for people, has transparency about it has accurate information, right? Especially when it comes to healthcare. Related to that, I'm also sitting on one with the World Health Organization, um, where we're doing something similar, where we're talking about medical misinformation. And that was built off of um, the COVID pandemic, where we saw a lot of misinformation being spread online, especially on places like TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and talking about how do you actually make sure that you mitigate the problems that exist there? And so, like you said, if you don't have you, you need the science there to educate people about the policies. You need the policy there to make sure that the science sticks in a way, right? So that the things that we talk about actually end up being encoded into our systems. But I think you need social media to be able to get the, the ideas out there and let people know what's happening, right? To tell people, hey, Roe versus Wade, um, you might not be able to have access to abortion here, but here's where you can go instead, right? Or here's where you can advocate for. If you want to let your your, your political people know about what's happening, here's where you call. Here's who you talk to. Here's how you get in, in contact with people like, that can make change. And so, like you said, I think it all goes hand in hand. And I think a lot of people have been trying to keep politics outside of outside of um, science or outside of the, the hospital room. But unfortunately, it's, it is political, right? Because when politicians start making decisions about what happens in the doctor's office, doctors need to step, step up and say, here's how it should be. This is what I see in my practice. Because medicine isn't like any other field. And and unless you actually go through or actually see people every single day, you don't quite understand what it takes to actually help a patient.
0: Right. No, I mean, it reminds me of the line, the personal is political. Um, Yep. Absolutely. um, Yeah. So, you you know, I think the point of uh, misinformation, disinformation is a a really important one, obviously given that history of the COVID pandemic. And I think part of that is just that there are, I mean, for, for one, disinformation travels a lot faster, lies travel faster than truth sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but more than that, I think there's also sort of many physicians themselves uh, don't necessarily trust social media and are hesitant to use it, right? No. Um, and it's not entirely clear to me why that is. Perhaps they think it's unprofessional, perhaps they're intimidated by it, or mm-hmm. they think it's just too difficult to build an audience. Let me not bother. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I want to ask you just as a broader question, what role do you personally think that physicians and other healthcare professionals uh, should be playing on social media?
1: I think physicians should be on social media. And I'm actually the American Medical Association digital fellow. And uh, I actually, I'll I'll talk to people that are like 70 years old about getting (laughs) on TikTok. I actually had a session where I like taught them how to get on TikTok and how to use it. And the reason why I think so is because people are talking about healthcare information, right? But they're getting it from sources that are not trusted. The problem is we have a lack of trusted officials where people are getting their information from. Seven in 10 Americans get their medical information right now on social media. And I think when you think about that number, that is a high number. Someone's going to be coming into your office and saying, I saw this on TikTok. I saw this on Instagram. If you don't understand the type of information that's out there as a doctor, if you don't understand what people are looking at, you don't understand how to actually put accurate information out there, you're not able to best help your patients. If you don't understand. And one of the things you do when you're, In medicine, is like you're taking their H and P, trying to understand their history, and physical, and all their kind of social background, right? But if you don't also understand where they're consuming media from, you can't meet them halfway to understand what their needs are versus what reality is. And so, I really see social media as something that every physician should be on. I think Twitter, for a long time, has been the main space that doctors are in, but Twitter is this like black hole when it comes to like (laughs) the general public. Where if you're not in med Twitter, you don't have access to it. You know, and so bringing the conversations that happen in med Twitter, which are often great into more public squares like Instagram or TikTok is really important.
0: Yeah, no, it, it reminds me of sort of a statistic that's often thrown around, right? That Like 80 to 90% of health <laughs> happens outside the clinic walls, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of refers to social determinants, right? Yeah. So like if you're a physician who's only treating within the clinic, right, mm-hmm. you're not gonna be able to do much for your patients, right? It's, yeah. it, it requires broader thinking that I think is very relevant with what you, what you just mentioned. I want to go back to our discussion on sort of health disparities and health equity. Um, and sort of, I mean, you previously noted that like racism gets passed down in healthcare, care, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the biases are institutionalized in the medical textbooks, in the instruction itself, and, and more. So mm-hmm. I, I'm really curious, like, how do you stay optimistic and hopeful when the problem <laughs> is so massive and progress to deracinate these health disparities so
1: slow? Yeah, I say hopeful knowing that I'm being a part of the solution. And I think everyone can be a part of the solution right now. These conversations haven't been had frequently. And so I think what makes me excited is because I know they're being, being being made in a way that's actually being heard. Um, that places as high as the AMA um, are literally having task, force, tax, task forces about health equity and bringing in students that are wanting to talk about this. That our medical schools are becoming more diverse, not fast enough, but they are becoming more diverse. That we're recognizing the importance of HBCUs and recognizing the history of them as well. And the more I think that we tie the history of the past to what we can do today in the future to actually make a more equitable system, the better. Um, But it is hard sometimes, I think, especially when there's so much pushback oftentimes. And you see this even right now in such a fraught political climate. Um, I actually had had an interview with Fox News and they were asking me like, tell us about the things that you do. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go on just because it's going to be a very different audience than what I'm used to. And I want to see the criticism that people have. And unfortunately, a lot of the criticism isn't about the content, but it's just general like words like anti-wokeness, right? Where Without figuring out what does that mean in medicine? Like, do you realize that these things exist right now? And I used to actually go on um, TikTok and they would be like these live sessions and people would have debates um, and they put in their background on like the green screen and say something like, oh, debate me about like, um, systemic racism isn't real. And whenever I would say that, I was always, I would always jump on. And it was so (laughs) fun because like, no, I would start talking about my content and say like, oh, did you know that there's race-based medicine, that people assume this, that people assume that black people have like higher muscle mass. And so we create this equation. And the people were always like, no, that can't be true. I've never heard about that before. And I'm like, oh, it exists. Here's the research articles about it. And of course, I wouldn't hear back from them at all. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, dang, Like this this literally changes my whole worldview. I didn't realize stuff like this exists, is encoded in systems. And so I think what makes me hopeful is the fact that when people actually learn about this stuff, they want to change it. And they want to become a part of the solution. They want to actually understand more of how we got here, what we can do actually fix it for the people that come afterwards.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's sort of the old adage, right, about shining a spotlight on darkness, right? And how mm-hmm. that... I mean, it, it reveals what other people otherwise people might not know, they haven't been looking for, right? Um, and sort of makes it all apparent. Um, yeah. You know, on that sort of notion of progress, right? I mean, it's interesting seeing over the past two years, right? There's obviously been a lot of progress on health equity, as you're mentioning, sort of this explosion in mm-hmm. research. Um, yeah. But for, at least for certain companies and organizations, health equity seems to be more of a buzzword, right? They yeah. make bold statements and promises, but they rarely fall through or just fall through in name only. Um, yeah. So... I'm, I'm curious, in your opinion, how should we get out of this trap of tokenizing health equity work um, and mm-hmm. work towards making this buzzword more of a reality? Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone does this, but certainly you see it often.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I agree. It definitely happens a lot. Um, I think part of the reason why it happens is because we don't define what that means or show examples of what that means. And I think that's really what I'm trying to do with social media. Like I have a whole platform on health equity, right? But I've made over 500 videos on it which shows that like health equity is a broad thing and like being able to tackle it, it comes from different different ways, right? So just some examples, like things that have happened in the past two years, I think show progress in the general sphere of health, health equity. Pulse oximeters, which I've talked about before, earlier this month, November 1st, um, the FDA finally convened a meeting to look at them and to actually evaluate them, even though decade, decades of research existed already that they didn't work as well. So that's a huge first step, right? Like being able to say, hey, the FDA is finally taking this seriously. When it comes to race-based equations, the GFR equation that I mentioned before that assumes that all black people have higher muscle mass and thus have better kidney functioning, there's now an equation that has removed race from it. That's huge. You know, like before 2020, that would never have happened. That some happened in other places, but that's been removed. Another equation, the VBAC calculator had this... <sighs> This one's weird too, but had this. they made an assumption that um, if you were black or Latinx, you would have a less likely chance of getting a vaginal birth, but i have to get a C-section. That equation has been done, done away with too. Um, there's one that needs to be done now is like spirometry, which is like, it's, it assumes that all Asian and black patients have lower lung functioning. But I, I mentioned those to show that like, when we talk about health equity, all those things are related to health equity. We don't talk about it like that. We often just say health equity, right? There's like That's one big term. It can be confusing for people to understand, how do I actually tackle it? But when we actually get down to the roots of GFR, or pulse oxidative spirometry, and start one by one dismantling each of these, that's how we reach success. And so that's what I'm trying to do, is really naming the problem and showing how it exists, as opposed to just putting a broad label to it. I think more companies need to do that in all aspects of it, um, especially when it comes to diversity, right, Of, of, um, of diversity of clinical trials, diversity of... Healthcare workforce, all that kind of stuff relates back to each of those things and being able to have people that understand how these exist and being able to dismantle them.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's a little bit about just going beyond words and actually um, doing stuff with your actions, right? I mean, actions yeah. speak louder than words often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a little bit about representation as well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, as I know, you're in the cohort of the first black medical students at Washington State University, mm-hmm. um, and you hope to enter orthopedic surgery, a mm-hmm. field where fewer than 2% of the practitioners are black, as reported by Stat News. So yeah, I mean, some exactly. of our listeners have had or will have similar experiences, right, being the only one mm-hmm. in the room. Um, so what advice would you give to students about creating their own space?
1: Yeah, it's, it's not easy, <laughs> right, to be the first and often the only but I think figure out your tribe early on. Find those mentors that are in administration. That was the first thing I did when I got to my school. I found the people that I knew would be my advocates. Um, and I, so I speak about like three different types of people: mentors, sponsors, and advocates. I think a lot of people have heard that now. Mentors, I think, are the, like the lowest rung. You know, advocates are great because they're going to actually advocate for you for that next stage. Sponsors are the best. Sponsors are the best. They're not just going to advocate for you; they're going to throw money behind it too. Um, and actually how I got into even being interested in orthopedics was during my junior summer of college, I did an internship at Howard university hospital was randomly thrown into orthopedics and it was an incredible opportunity and it was a paid opportunity by a program I did, you know? And so I think of like those people that put me in that spot as my sponsors fast forward two years. Um, I went to a gala and I met this doctor named Dr. Steven Gunther. And he uh, quickly became a mentor because he saw I was interested in orthopedics. He was like, stay in contact when you go to medical school. When COVID hit, a lot of my plans for that summer were canceled. But Dr. Gunther reached out and said, hey, why don't you come down to Charlottesville and actually hang out for the summer and shadow me for a summer? And no, I'd only met this guy once, (laughs) you know, and but he was like, I want you to come like hang out with me and my family. It ended up being the best summer ever. And so I say, like, find those, those advocate sponsors that are actually going to help you out to um, really get involved. I think the more you are involved in your institution, the more you can find ways to, to create spaces for others. So when I got to my institution, I did student government, a student body president for my school. Um, I also started a student national medical association on campus, became president of that as well. And I was trying to create spaces as well. Sometimes it's, Sometimes you can't walk into a space that exists. And so it's how do you create spaces, open it up, and then find others that you can you can bond with. And there weren't really other Black students I could connect with. And so I just got other people from different minority groups, you know, and that was the first uh, form of it. But now, I think this past year, we have uh, 11 Black students all together throughout our school. And that's been something, one of my personal projects is how do we make sure to bring more people? And so I've been recruiting. I always talk to students that are interested when they ask me, like, what's it like being Black in Spokane? where there's less than 1% of people that are black. I'm very honest about it, you know, but I also say like you have opportunities to create your own spaces. And that's, I think that's a beautiful thing to know that you are helping the next generation. Maybe difficult for you, but knowing that you're actually gonna make it easier for the person that comes after, for me has always been uh, just a a motivating point. So I think really understanding how to get involved, create spaces, um, and then of course, protecting your peace too, making sure that you're finding ways to rejuvenate yourself and that you, feel free to say no, right? Don't do everything. Um, I think POC, we, we often do work without getting compensated. And that's been, I literally, I think in the past year have very much changed my philosophy of like, I don't do things for free anymore, you know, or unless it's like for someone that I know, like, or a group that can't pay. But I'm just like, I, like no more free labor. <laughs> this is work. And like, I'm taking time off from studying to do it. And so really making sure you have your worth and you're protecting your peace as well.
0: Right. I think it's a really good point because um, it's overburdened, right? Um, It's important work, no doubt, oftentimes, right? But you can't do it all alone, right? And you shouldn't be expected to do it all alone. You know, I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, uh, I wanted to ask you for three pieces of advice uh, you'd give to students who are interested in sort of a career like yours in the sense that using social media for health equity and medical education
1: more generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first I'd say, just do it. Nike's slogan, Right. Uh, I just jumped into this, not knowing where it was gonna go. I was stuff I was passionate about. I'd taken history of science and medicine classes when I was inside college, and I'd fallen in love with just like these hidden stories that we didn't often hear about. And so I think finding your passions and leading and just just doing it, just posting if you want to do that. Finding the communities, because no matter what you want to go into, there's a community that exists already online somewhere. Maybe not in the way you want to do it, but there's a community that exists. And so once I started posting videos, I started thinking, I, I can't be the only one doing this kind of work, right? Like of, like of using digital media. Um, so where does everyone else exist? And I found them, but they were in different places. And so I started kind of trying to collect them and bring them together. So that's another thing. Find the people that you want to work with, bring them together, especially if you're using social media. And then lastly, um, I think recognizing that trolls are positive feedback. <laughs> the more trolls you get, the more your, your message is spreading, you know? So as soon as you start getting your first hate comments, See that as a badge of honor. <laughs> um, and I say that just to say, like, especially in this kind of work with health equity, there's going to be people that push back because they feel uncomfortable about changing the norms of how things have always been. And so recognizing that people will always have their opinions and that as long as you are strong in what you believe and you are strong in your cause, uh, you will be able to change the world.
0: Yeah, what a great note to end on. Um, you know, I wrote a story for the Washington Post on Pulse Oxenders, and mm. the comments are just filled with trolls like you imagine. Yeah. So, certainly not on the same level that I imagine you face, but I think the badge monitor is a good point. And yeah. you're yeah. if you're going to be doing this work, you have to be willing to let that wash over you. Exactly. Um, so, no, that What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Joel, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Great talking with you.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. You can also head to the description of this podcast to follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.